Hi, this is Kev Lakes Walker, and you are about to hear a podcast of an interview that appeared on Shades of Blues here on The Cat. And there will be plenty more as we delve into the archives. Sit back and enjoy. I'm delighted to say I'm now joined on the phone by David A. Less, author and researcher and, what do you say, historian. Oh, by the way, hello, David. Hello, how are you? I do apologise for that. (laughs) I'm diving straight into the interview and not actually saying hello to you. But would you regard yourself as a historian? Well, I think I have a strong interest in history and I have a background. I've done a lot of work. Uh, My career has not been as a historian. Um, but I, 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 I suppose that you could consider me an historian, sure. Yeah, and like I say, you're an author, and you're a researcher whose work has helped. There's a, a museum in Memphis. Yes, it's a Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. That's the uh, one. I was, I was desperately trying to the, remember the name of it. Yeah, I've been there twice myself, and I couldn't remember the name of the place. Uh, but your research... <laughs> has been featured in that, hasn't it? Yes, the Smithsonian, were they were a client of mine, and we did the research together, and um, I was on that research team and did several of those interviews and helped direct some of the um, uh, you know people that we, we chose to interview. Yeah, and I must say to anybody that is thinking of going to Memphis at some point in the future, do go to that museum because it's a mine of information. And you can go around listen to music from way back when. There's clothing, there's uh, artefacts from various artists. Were you involved with the construction of that building, or was it just the research you did? Well, I was actually involved. Um, I was hired in, in two phases. Uh, first, I was on the research team, and we, we did all the research. And then at that point, their, their folks uh, sort of write the story of what the museum was going to be and hire a designer. Then we needed to find artifacts to fill the museum. Once once the story was written and we knew what we needed, and I was hired to collect the artifacts, um, and there's a lot of a lot of very good stories about those. Yes, stories. I can imagine that was a voyage uh, of discovery. Well, you know, uh, finding the um, Ike Turner's piano uh, was, um, was quite an adventure. Um, we, we contacted him about the piano, and it was the one that he had learned to play, and Pine Top had taught him how lessons, and it was in a garage uh, behind a house in St. Louis, and um, I, you know, we made a deal with Ike to buy the piano from him, and when our folks went to pick it up, and they got the piano, snakes were crawling out of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, maybe that's appropriate for Ike's music and uh, Pine Top's in the blues, but... Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's yeah. one story. Well, the one thing I've not mentioned is uh, I'm chatting to you in regard to your book, Memphis Mayhem, which is a superb book. It doesn't just touch on the music of Memphis. It touches on the city, Memphis, and its place in social history, racial history, everything about it. How long did it take you to actually write the book? Well, you know, I, I started my research in 1976, uh, I had a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, and I was in graduate school studying studying Memphis music and writing. And my original intent was to write the book then, uh, and I thought it was going to be the history of Memphis music. There wasn't a lot of research done then, so my intent was to write sort of the overall history of Memphis music. And over the years, as, as other people have written great books and done great things, um, 
years later, uh, Rob Bowman's book on stacks, Robert Gordon's book on stacks. My friend Peter Garonic has written great books about Memphis and Elvis and Sam Phillips. It, it sort of evolved, and I began to think of it as a story as opposed to a history. I know this is a roundabout way to get to where to answer the question, but um, as I started thinking about it, I started thinking about it as as a as, as a story because that's what Southern people are. We're storytellers. Mm. And by calling it a story and not a history, I didn't have to write 300 pages on stacks that had already been written. I didn't have to write, you know, the whole Sam Phillips story, which, you know, was, I don't know how many hundred pages, 800 pages. I, I just had to refer to those people in the, as, as those instances, instances as they related to the overall arc and the overall story of Memphis music. And I, I wasn't constricted to be chronological. So it was very liberating to do that. Once I came to that point, it took me about, I would say, a year to two years to write the book. Yeah. You can say 40 years, it's two years. Yes. Because <laughs> you do say in the foreword that there were so many artists and people involved in the story, to include them all would just be impossible. So you, you make apologies right at the start for anybody who's been omitted. Well, yes. I mean, there are so many, and and truthfully, having researched as much as I have, I have I have probably you know ten books of things I've interviewed everybody from Memphis Slim to Gus Cannon to you know contemporary people, the high rhythm people, and um, you know Jim Dickinson and Alex Chilton, and so I have interviews with all of these people, um, and I couldn't put everything like say if I did everything I knew or everything I had done, the book would be completely unwieldy. Yeah. And nobody would want to read it. It'd be the war and peace of music, wouldn't it? Yes, it would. <laughs> it would. But, I mean, Memphis, for people over here in the UK, we mainly associate it with Sun Records and Stax. And for people interested in the blues, maybe the old jug bands from the 1920s, like you mentioned, Gus Cannon. But there's so much more to the city itself, isn't there? There's quite a lot to it. Um, I mean... Music is a thing that we do. Uh, you know, Memphis um, has had several different significant things. We, you know, FedEx began here. Um, the notion of a self-service grocery store began here. Holiday Inns began here. There's a lot of innovative things that have started here. But music really is a thing that we hang our hat on. And it's a thing that we do better than anybody. And I hate to sound, you know, like that. But I think a lot of people feel that way. Hmm. Um, there's something about Memphis that, uh, and the musicians here that is unique. One point that I picked up on in the book is the the musicians were playing in the local bars and the clubs and making records, which were going up and down the charts, but they had no idea of just how big they were outside of America. And it wasn't until the Stax tour that they realized just how many people actually love their music. Yeah, that's true. And, and you know, although that, that happened in the 70s, that's probably still happening. Um, I know it certainly happened later. My, my friend Jim Dickinson uh, toured briefly with Ry Cooter and toured um, Europe briefly, and he was astounded that anybody knew who he was, and they had his record and wanted him to sign it, and it, it was a complete revelation. He had no idea. Um, today, there are people who've been playing, you know, these little clubs on Beale Street and playing around, 
who have been on really significant records. Um, you know, Steve Selvage and, and uh, certainly Steve Potts, Dave Smith. These are all names. If you look at contemporary records, you're going to see their names on there. Yeah. And you can still find them playing in the bars. You know, they're still around playing. That's one thing I picked up on when I was uh, visited, and the standard of the musicianship is just astounding. Well, yeah, you know, and and one point that I make, you know, in these interviews and tried to make in the book is that it's really not, um, Memphis has a whole history of what we call legacy artists, and they're fantastic artists, and they, um, you know, obviously that list goes on and on and on and on, Elvis and Charlie Rich and, you know, William Bell and and Otis Redding, and you know, I mean, that list, Al Green, you just continue that list forever. But the musicianship hasn't dropped off. It's part of the DNA. And, uh, you know, I would certainly put uh, those guys I mentioned, Steve Potts and Dave Smith, Steve Selvage, those people that I have worked with a lot in the studio, man, they could, they would have been, they would have been busy back then, you know. I mean, they're, they're busy now. They would have been busy back then. Yeah. They're just that good. And one thing you mentioned early on in the book is a lot of people regard Memphis as the home of the blues because that's where W.C. Handy started writing down the music as sheet music. Correct. You know, I, I, one of the, the, the real, I guess, what we call an elevator pitch, you know, the, the three-line, you know, what's the book about when you pitch it to your agent? And uh, I basically believe that there are three instances where world history collided with Memphis and took a turn. It was never the same after that. And the three instances, basically, two of them have to do with music and all of them have to do with race. The first one being what you mentioned. When when W.C. Handy notated the blues, uh, he took what was a a regional, I mean a very regional music, uh, African-American music, and he was able to put it out there in the world because prior to phonograph, people learned music and it was disseminated through sheet music. So by writing it down where people in New York and uh, L.A. and England and across the world were able to then hear blues and play blues, he took that regional music and made it into what it is, which is the bedrock right now of world music, but certainly of Western music. Mm. Uh, and then the second time would be when Elvis started and, and took black music and became what my friend Larry Raspberry calls the tributary of of black music and culture into white households, you know, and it, it, it changed racial opinions. It made a difference in terms of the way uh, blacks and whites interacted and, and, you know, white teenagers were listening to black music and they were, they were listening to it, you know, played by, it created rock and roll. And then the third is the tragedy of, of Dr. Martin Luther King's assassination year. Because I think, you know, we all know the impact of that in terms of civil rights. And, and I hope, you know, again, it's not a, that, that's an American story, uh, civil rights. Um, but it, it did affect uh, things that happened here. Uh, when he was assassinated, I think people understood, you know, you, you couldn't hide from it mm. at that point. You know, yeah. like suburbia couldn't hide. I remember seeing a documentary about Stax. And uh, Steve Cropper was saying on the night of the assassination, there was riots all over the place. And people were going to attack the Stax studio. And he was at the door saying, no, no, we're with you. Because the the Stax yeah. musicians, it wasn't black or white. You were musicians. They were. And and it took, you know, the, the city leaders came to Isaac Hayes at that time and asked him to help sort of quell the community, which he did. Uh, and it was very important that the amount of violence that we saw here was not equal to uh, some other places uh, yeah. following the assassination. I think 
part of that was the effect of stacks and certainly Isaac Hayes' powerful message that he, he made to the community. Yeah. It's well documented about how a lot of blues musicians migrated to Chicago because they could get better jobs there and able to perform. Similarly, with Memphis, there was a lot of musicians that working on the plantations around Clarksdale area, that type of thing, that migrated to Memphis, weren't there? Yes, well, Memphis was the center of um, commerce, trade, commerce, and entertainment for uh, at least a three-state region. I mean, Mississippi and Arkansas and Tennessee, West Tennessee at least, uh, all came to Memphis, whether they were agricultural and selling, uh, you know, cotton, of course, was a big business here, and uh, selling their cotton or their or whatever they were selling, whatever the farmers were selling, that was all done here. All that trade was done here. And, of course, then once they were able to do that and they had a little money in their pocket, they wanted to be entertained. And so uh, they came here for entertainment, and Beale Street was the place they came to. Um, so, yeah, people left, you know, really the migration to Chicago and to the north really happened, you know, I would say 1940 to 1970, somewhere around there. Mm. And uh, a lot of that had to do with industrial revolution. I mean, you know, the, the agriculture was changing. Um, tractors and things were replacing, combines were replacing farmhands and replacing workers. And they had to go north where there were factories and the opportunity for work. Yeah. I mean, it, it's one thing that did shock me on my first visit to Beale Street is that I'd always regarded that as being the home of jug bands like Cannon's Jug Stompers, the, the Memphis Shakes, that kind of thing. But there's not many uh, record stores selling jug band music. It is, it's like they've almost forgotten that part of their history. Well, you know, um, Beale Street was, um, was not what... Historic Beale Street was not what it is today. Mm. Uh, today it is, it is a city-owned entertainment district. And it's run with the notion that revenue comes from clubs and drinks and um, people coming in to hear blues bands that are electrified. Uh, in, in the old days, historically, uh, there weren't really clubs. There were joints. There were places, and they didn't have bands. They would have piano players mm. and uh, and gambling and, uh, and, you know, prostitution out on the street and things like that. So certainly that's not what the city wanted to go back to, but the place of the country bluesmen and the drug band were on the street, essentially. Yeah. Uh, they were not in the clubs. And uh, I think that, that you're right. It would be great to have more jug bands. You know, find a, find a guy who can blow a jug now, though. Yeah. <laughs> He's pretty much a lost art. Yeah. Uh, but, I mean, you talk about how Beale Street has changed. There is one constant, one reminder of the old history there, and that swabs into it. It's still there. Yeah. If you walk in there, if anyone does go and you walk in, it does have that oldie-worldie feel, doesn't it? You know, it does. Um, I, I've been going to Schwab's, of course, all my life, you know, since it was, it's been there all my life. Since it's, a, it's a store that was there starting in the 1860s, I believe. And um, it was a dry goods store and a place, just for your listeners who don't know, um, where people could go and, and the saying was, if you can't get it at Schwab's, you don't need it. <laughs> uh, so you could get your overalls and they had harmonicas and they had socks and... and um, you know, they really had a little bit of everything. It was it was a dry goods store, and whatever you wanted, you'd buy there. Mm. Uh, and it's a big place. It's a two-story. When I would go there, I remember distinctly in the 70s, we went there, and Beale Street was nothing at the time. It was pretty much shut down. But we would go to Schwab's, and they had in the corner um, a Buddha uh, with a red light bulb. Mm. 
and uh, it was a Buddha statue that was, you know, maybe eight inches tall. It wasn't, you know, like a giant thing. And I had friends in from um, Pennsylvania, and this guy said, I have to have that. And he, he went and said, look, how much is the Buddha? They said, it's not for sale. I said, no, 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 I don't care how much it is. How much is the Buddha? They said, it's not for sale. And I mean, he tried everything, and they were not going to sell the Buddha. So close to the Buddha, and as we found out a little more about it, um, you could get your voodoo potions there. Mm. Uh, you know, I mean, and, and they and, they, and it was real. I mean, people would go in there to buy stuff to break spells. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's an amazing place, and it's still there. And I encourage anybody who comes to go to, to Schwab's. It's a, you're right. It's a place you got to go see. Yeah. If you want a hat, go there. They've got some wonderful hats. <laughs> I bought a harmonica for my daughter there, actually. <laughs> Um, that one question that's just crossed my mind while we're talking, the bridge, the iconic bridge at Memphis, I was told the story that the arch that goes over the bridge only goes halfway because the state on the other side of the river wouldn't pay for it. Is that true? No. 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 So why does the arch only go halfway then? Well, now the bridge over the river, there are two bridges over the river. I, I don't know why that happened, but that's all on the Tennessee side. Right. Um, so I, I wouldn't think that, it, and, it, and it's all interstate, so it's all federal money, I would think. Right. Um, I, I know what you're talking about, but I don't I don't really know why it's, why it's like that. Mm, it's just one of those urban myths that we'll never know, probably. Well, it's it's Memphis strange. You know, you find little <laughs> like that all over the place. <laughs> Another one is down towards... B.B. King Boulevard, there's a building there where you've just got the front of the building and some scaffolding behind it. And I've seen old pictures where it's like that. What was that building? On Beale Street, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. What happened was, and, um, you know, this is this is the, I guess, radical left hippie version of me, mm-hmm. uh, my friends and I. Uh, you know, the, the Beale Street was put on uh, the National Historic Register in the 60s. And that meant you couldn't tear those buildings down. Um, they had to be preserved. But the city owned them, or bought all, actually bought all the real estate. They didn't own it at the time. They bought all the real estate. Uh, it was all deteriorating. And uh, we surmised that the city was waiting for them to fall down because the cost of repairing them and making them useful as a bar and a club uh, would have been prohibitive, very expensive. So their idea was to just ignore them and not weatherize them and let them all fall down. And that's essentially what happened to that building. Then when they started back uh, actually putting clubs in and renovating and doing the, the things that they did, that facade was there. Right. And I think they had to preserve the facade in order to get federal money or whatever. And they made a patio behind it. Yes. Basically. Yeah. It's useful as a patio. But I think that's why that facade exists, not because of the historic nature of the building necessarily, although all of them have stories. Mm. but because the building basically fell down behind it. Right. And because of the, national re- the designation as a National Historic Register, they had to sort of prop it up. Yeah. That's what I always heard. Right. I'll, I'll go with that. That's fine by me. Beale Street has become very touristy, and that's where a lot of people migrate to. And there's what's more history on the outskirts, isn't there? Well, it's, it, it was part of a plan to revitalize that neighborhood um the historically uh, black college lemoyne owen college is very close to there and it was a it was a very thriving neighborhood part of south memphis mm. uh, which has deteriorated and become very problematic and when the stack studio was actually torn down 
And what you see is a, is a recreation. They rebuilt it on the same spot. Uh, and they did a great job because they, they built it back exactly like it was. Mm-hmm. And then they put the school next to it, the Stax Academy, which is an amazing thing, and built around it. But the whole thing was part of a revitalization plan to bring that neighborhood back. And so there are stores over there now, and there's a rock climbing place, and there's um, different things there in an effort but it's it's a, it's huge. I mean, try to bring back a neighborhood cost. You know, it, it, it's a very big project, and it's ongoing. But I think they've done a great job. Yeah, uh, it's you know, it's not a place you'd walk to. But Memphis is sprawling. Um, land is so cheap here that you know, from from downtown where you probably would be the the Peabody Hotel and, and those places to the end of the city is quite quite long. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. Yeah. I'll, I'll be, Again, you know, anyone thinking of going to Memphis, go to the Sachs Museum and just have a look at Isaac Hayes' limousine. It's a joy to behold. Yeah. I take it you've seen that, that gold-plated limousine. Oh, of course. Well, you know, music tourism is a really big industry here. Yeah. And we have the, you know, Sun Records studio is there. Mm. You know, that's available for tours. And, um... You know, as you said, Stacks and the Memphis Rock and Soul Museum. And there's now the Memphis Music uh, Hall of Fame downtown also. Yep, 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 yep. Um, but there's a lot of music-related uh, places to go and things to do. But like I said earlier on, in your book, you talk about the music, obviously, but you also talk about the social history of Memphis as well, which it, it was getting better, wasn't it, in the 60s with people like Stax having interracial bands, and then the Martin Luther King thing threw it all up in the air. And I think there's a quote in your book from Steve Cropper saying that because of that, it will never be the same again. Well, yeah, I think that um, he said it never was the same again, I think. Not that it never will be the same again. I don't know that, um, you know, Memphis is a place where race plays into every conversation. Um, And... Yes, I think that maybe things are better. I have friends that are, um, you know, African American friends of uh, that are my age. I'm 68, um, who grew up through that time, who have said to me very recently that racism in Memphis is different than other places, and I think there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, you know, in, in the book we talk about um, the yellow fever epidemic and the racial disparity and things that occurred, and mm. uh, you know, read my book, right? <laughs> <laughs> shameless plug, read my book. But um, I think I would like to think things are better today than they were. Uh, certainly, whatever um, horrible things that, that have happened in the past uh, in terms of, of violence um, has been uh, mitigated. You know, Black Lives Matter is a, is a very strong presence. We have an African-American mayor of the county. We have had black mayors of the city. We have an African-American police chief. Uh, the city council and the county commission uh, are well represented proportionally. It's the city is 65% black, and uh, I think that we are representative in government that way. So, yeah, I, I think things are better, uh, certainly from that standpoint, but it's, we still got a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, we've discussed between ourselves in the studio that in any city, big town, or whatever you want to call it, they've all got their rough areas that you wouldn't go down to at night. And it, it's just... Well, partly because of the Martin Luther King assassination, that the, the world spotlight was put on Memphis and shown in a bad light. Well, it was, uh, and you know, there's a lot of theories about you know what happened, and you know, it, 
There are many theories about the assassination of Dr. King as there are about the assassination of President Kennedy, mm. uh, who was behind it, the government was behind it, that this was that, you know, all, there's, there's all kinds of conspiracy theories. Um, but ultimately, um, James Earl Ray was not a Memphian. He came to Memphis to do this. Yeah. And uh, that speaks a little bit about about it. You know, it, it, it is, race in America is, a, is, is, a, is an ongoing uh, conversation. Mm. Uh, and I, I hoped to, that it would not by this point in my life, but unfortunately it still is. Yeah. And you talk about the influence of music that was coming out of Memphis, how it affected people around the world. And you mentioned the Beatles and the Stones. And I first time I went to Memphis, I was in the record shop, and it's got Memphis meets the Beatles. There's a series of CDs there of Memphis artists recording Beatles songs. So it's sort of come full circle almost. Uh, well, there's, there's actually a story in the book about uh, a drummer here named Blair Cunningham, who was a member of a very famous Memphis family of drummers. Mm-hmm. His brother was, was a Barcade drummer who died in the plane crash that killed Otis Redding. And uh, Blair was in UK somewhere, I'm not sure where, um, as a drummer. And he was called by Paul McCartney to um, come and, and jam. McCartney was auditioning him for his band. And it, the two of them played together at McCartney's studio on his estate, uh, McCartney on guitar and, and Blair on drums. And, you know, they jammed together for an hour or so. And after they finished, uh, Blair said to Paul McCartney, you know, if we could find a bass player, we could be a pretty good band. Uh, you know, McCartney the, is the bass player. Obviously. Yeah, yeah. The Beatles. And, and, and it's not that, that Blair didn't know that about the Beatles and about their music. We came from a family of um, of musicians and everybody knew about it. But, you know, it just it, it was that Memphis guys, you know, were focused in on Memphis. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, he grew, he grew up with his brother playing with Otis Redding. Mm. I mean, you know, so yeah. it, it just was a different thing. Yeah. He ended up I'd, joining the band, by the way. McCarty did hire him. And he, did, <laughs> he did play. I did see that story, but I'm, I'm trying not to give too much away about the book because I want people to go out and buy it. It is a superb book. Has this inspired you to delve deeper or write another book about this subject? Yeah, I want to do another book. My next book that I'm researching now and, and hope to start writing in 2021 is about um, Joe Coogie, uh, John Novaris, and Poplar Tunes, and leading into High Records and Willie Mitchell and, of course, Royal Studios. Yeah, uh, all of those things are interrelated to me, and I think that's a really fantastic story that I'd like to write. I've got a lot of research already done on that, and I just have a few more interviews, and then hopefully, like I say, in twenty twenty one, I'll start writing on that. Well, you mentioned High Records there. I mean, that's another superb record label which a lot of people don't know about. I mean, there's so much stuff that has come out of Memphis that people don't realize emanated from that city. There are a lot of reasons that I think music was so good here. And, of course, I I try to, in the book, talk about as many of them as possible. But uh, one thing that happened was that um, Memphis had an infrastructure here uh, during that time. It started with Sam Phillips and started with those labels in the 50s. Uh, uh, There was a pressing plant, so you could get your records pressed and go pick them up right away. Poplar Tunes was a huge influence because it allowed distribution and some promotions uh, through the jukebox business. You could get the records heard, and you could get the records in the stores, and you get the records sold. So you could manufacture here, you could get the records sold. Uh, Dewey Phillips was a radio disc jockey, and there were other disc jockeys here, George Klein, who were amenable to playing the music so you could get it heard. 
the musicianship was superb. And then uh, there were people who, who labels who owned studios like Sun, mm. Stack owned their studio, High Records owned their studio. Uh, real estate was cheap and it was easy to put up a studio, and they did. Well, is it true that you could record the song in the morning and have it played on the radio that night? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Because Sun Studio, well, I made the mistake of walking there the first time I went, and it's a, it's a bit of a walk, um, but well worth going to. And Rocket 88 is regarded by a lot of people as being the first rock and roll single, and that was recorded at that studio, wasn't it? It was, it was. And, and you know, there is some dispute among historians as to what was the first rock and roll single. Rocket 88 is one that's, that's mentioned a lot, and certainly... Uh, you gotta, you gotta consider that. Uh, other people think "Rock and Chair Daddy" by Harmonica Frank, mm-hmm. you know, uh, could have been the first rocking record. Um, so, but you know, which side of the fence are you on? You know, I, I don't, I don't think of things in those terms. Truthfully, mm. uh, the first this said, I think, mean, I think the fact that, that all of the conversation centers on Sam Phillips and his studio is more significant than which one you pick. Yeah. You know, whether it's Elvis or whether it's Rocket 88 or whether it's Harmonica Frank, uh, there's the man behind the board is the same guy. Yeah. Uh, the producer is the same guy. So I think it's easy to say Sam Phillips was in rock and roll, but it'd be harder to pick the first rock record. Yeah. We mentioned about Sun Studios, and you can actually still record there, can't you? If you go there over late evening or at night when it's not a tourist destination, you can actually still record at Sun, can't you? Yes, they produce. They still do uh, rent the studio out, as I understand, and they do a television series from there also. Oh right, uh, is that the uh, sort of musical history program or about Memphis? No, it's contemporary. Actually, contemporary musicians here uh, can go in and perform, and they they tape them in performance for a television show. Right. Uh, so they they set up on the control. They set up in the in the tracking floor, and they play and camera. They've got enough camera angles and. Uh, which is amazing to me because it's such a small space. It is, yes. One thing that I've just thought about, are you actually a musician yourself? Do you play an instrument? You know, I started as a drummer when I was 12 years old. Um, thank you, Ringo Starr. Uh, <laughs> as, as, as everybody did at that, you know, at the Ed Sullivan, everybody my age, uh, after Ed, the Beatles were on Ed Sullivan, chose their instrument. Mm. But everybody mm. played. And, um, you know, and, and, and in Memphis, you know, everybody plays. You know, it wasn't a question, do you play? It was a question, what do you play? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I, I was the drummer. And I played drums for many years. Um, I still have a drum set in my office, uh, but I don't play any longer. I discovered I had uh, a better talent for producing records right. than for playing them. I played, I played with Jim Dickinson a couple of times live. And he took me aside and said, you know, you probably don't want to be a professional musician. <laughs> so <laughs> I figured out, this a guy who's produced big records, he probably understood. Yeah. There are so many stories and characters I would love to talk to you about, but we'd be here for hours. Um, but touching on that Ed Sullivan performance, in your book you mentioned when Elvis appeared on Ed Sullivan, and then when the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan, it, it changed the world of music totally, didn't it? Uh, it did. In both instances it did. Um, you know, Elvis, and, and as much as, you know, the appearance was important, but I think that it was equally important and was done both times is the endorsement from Ed Sullivan. These are four nice, four of the nicest lads you'd want to meet. Well, you know, that was really important because at that time they were coming over, they had long hair, and people were, you know, squinching their noses up and mm. saying, what's wrong with these guys? Yeah. Uh, and, 
you know, and of course Elvis the same way. You know, what, what, what you're jumping around, can't this guy stand still? And what he's playing this crazy music. But for Ed Sullivan to say, um, you know, he's a, he's a, he's a very nice boy uh, was really uh, significant. I yeah. think that was important. Because yeah. everybody was in Ed Sullivan. Everybody watched that show. Um, uh, the the head of one of the chapters in the book, there's a quote decrying rock and roll music that this will ultimately bring the races together, as if that's a bad thing. Right. Uh, Asa Carter. Asa Carter, yes. And, and I will confess that I, I did steal that quote from one of your countrymen, from two of your countrymen, Martin Hawkins and Colin, Hawk, Colin Escott, who wrote the original, did the original Sun Records research and are both very good friends, and I'd asked them before I, I stole the quote from them and credited it to them, but um, I think that that really is true. I mean, that that encapsulates the mood of the world, the mood of the country when Elvis came out and rock and roll came out. You know, the the that older generation did not want it. They resisted it, and they saw it as a, as a you know, bringing the races together, and they were vehemently opposed to that. That's, that's why I stole the quote. Yeah, um, they talk about Elvis stealing black music, but I I interviewed somebody not from Memphis, but uh, somebody else, and he was saying that he had black friends when he was a child, and they'd be playing in the streets throughout the week. But then come Sunday, when they were going to church, they couldn't go together, and he never understood that until he got older. Yeah, um, I think even today they call eleven o'clock on Sunday in Memphis the most segregated hour you know, in in the world. And I think that things may be getting better. But, you know, like I said, Memphis still has uh, Memphis. It's not just Memphis. I mean, it, it, it's America. And it's probably beyond America and the world. I, I don't know enough. Uh, certainly in, in my experience, um, they don't worship together. They don't pray together, which seems odd to me. Memphis has had its problems in the past but it's getting better. There is redevelopment within the, the town centre and on the outskirts, and also socially as well. So would you say the future is bright? I think things are, are, are certainly better, um, yes. You know, there are um, things that even when I was growing up, you know, I, I, I began in segregated schools, and school integration while I was still in high school, or junior high school, that began uh, in Memphis, integrating the schools, despite the fact that 1954 uh, was when it was supposed to begin, and it, it just didn't here. It didn't begin until 66, you know, sometime in the mid-60s. Um, and, you know, at that time, it was people, you know, it was, it was the first opportunity that we had to become friends, mm. you know, and, and we did. And, and quite frankly, uh, one of the ways we became friends was through playing music together. Yeah. Uh, I was in a band with, with uh, you know, black and white band, uh, you know, when I was in junior high and high school. And um, those were important opportunities for us to get to know each other uh, and to be together. Well, uh, So, you know, I think from that point forward, things have improved. We touched upon it earlier, but uh, I was chatting with Elvin Bishop a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying when himself and the likes of Charlie Musselwhite, when they went to Chicago, they'd go to the clubs and they'd learn their craft from the older bluesmen. And there was no white or black. They were just musicians. And that's the thing that inspires me. How can anybody accuse you of being racist if you like this kind of music? Well, I, I think that I think there's some some truth in that, and, and there were places here. Uh, Memphis black and white musicians played together, you know, as early as the 1940s. Um, there was a club called the Bitter Lemon in 1960s, where uh, the resurgence of the old blues guys 
Corey Lewis, Gus Cannon, you know, the, everybody that they found uh, met Fred McDowell, who was still here, mm. were able to play there and hang out in the club and get to know the young white teenagers. That was I was really too young to go to the Bitter Lemon, but um, you know, in in the fifties, for example, at High Records, uh, Willie Mitchell's band, uh, Willie and his band were were recording with the white players Reggie Young and Bobby Emmons and those people. So there was a there was a definite um, learning, you know, and and from each other. I yeah, think. yeah. It, I think it went both ways. When you're relaxing of a, a Saturday evening, do you venture out to Beale Street? No, I no. don't. Uh, you know, there's a saying, I, I was a promoter for many, many years and did shows, festivals and shows and promoted them. And I had a, I had a good friend who was a, a promoter as well, did shows. And he said, you know, David, never go in a crowded room where you're not making money. <laughs> and I took that to heart. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, uh, so I, I don't really. There's just such a feel about Beale Street. As a, a blues fan, I have to go there every time I, I go to Memphis. Well, you have to. Um, you know, although there are many other places, the next time you come, you know how to call me. And I'll, I'll tell you some other places to go and hear music as well. Because truthfully, the city has music dripping out of it. I mean, it's everywhere. Mm. Uh, Beale Street is a place where there's a lot of bars and a lot of places that. The music is, but there's there's always music in Memphis. I mean, there's always something going on. There's always music. You know, it's like I say, it, it is part of the DNA. I mean, it's 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 what we do. Mm. Anyway, I've, I've kept you far too long already, but thank you so much for this conversation, and thank you for the book as well. It's a superb book, and I urge anyone to go out and buy it. If you love your music, if you love blues, rock and roll, check this book out. Well, thank you. I enjoy talking to you. And next time you come to Memphis, you've got to call me. And I hope you enjoyed that little interview there. And there will be more as we record more for the show. And we are going to delve into the archives and pull some of the old ones out as well. So plenty more to come. And of course, if you want to hear the whole show, there is always Listen Again. I'll see you next time. Take care.